Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Kelly and Kelly. Welcome to Record Club. This is Record Club the podcast where people tell personal stories about how seminal albums impacted their lives. My name is Louise Burns. I'm a musician, producer, and your host. And on the show, you're going to hear stories in front of audiences from our Record Club nights. At these musical gatherings, we pick one classic album and invite storytellers to share their tales of how that album intersected with their lives. You're not going to hear deep critiques or musical dissections, just honest stories from passionate music fans told live. For this episode of Record Club, we're telling stories inspired by a contentious classic, an album that thrust the Canadian rocker behind it into the limelight, an intense glare he resented, but that ultimately set in motion one of the most productive phases of his career that would define him as a bona fide folk music legend. Your Record Club album for this week is Harvest by Neil Young. With the promise of a man. I want to be a rock star. Honest, he said that. That stands for heart of gold, toe tapper, which means like you're, if you're an H-O-G-T-T, you're a very casual Neil Young fan. <laughs> In the early months of 1972, Neil Young's career was the envy of any up-and-coming singer-songwriter. His last album after the gold rush secured his place as a folk rock renegade. And his recent split from the supergroup Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young left fans wondering what was next for him. It wasn't long until he released his fourth studio album, Harvest, which enjoyed an unexpected reception that critics and even Young himself questioned. Despite the commercial success of the song Heart of Gold, and the album becoming a multi-platinum bestseller, critics initially found it uneven and jarring. And to be honest, it does have several distinct versions of Neil Young. There's Grunge Neil... Solo acoustic Neil. I love you, baby. Can I have some more? And country rock Neil. Oh, 
While Young himself went as far as to disavow it, calling the album middle of the road, it continues to find its place on the record shelves of generations of music fans alike. Our first story takes place years before the release of Harvest, or any Neil Young album for that matter. Bev Davies is a legendary rock photographer based in Vancouver. She spent time with Neil in Ontario in the 60s and recalls his wanderlust, the catalyst for a lot of songs that we hear on Harvest and the sentiment that made so many of us fall in love with his music. Tannis was the first person that told Janine and I about Neil. She'd seen him walking on Avenue Road and he had this black hair, this shock of black hair and, and a Mac jacket, a red Mac jacket carrying his guitar case and was quite memorable. She'd not seen him before. And it took a few months before I met Neil. And Tannis and Janine and I were running a coffee house on Avenue Road. We would keep it open all night if there were people there. And Neil was in a band called the Minor Birds and he would started showing up after he finished playing at the Minerbird Club in his band, the Minerbirds, and he would come and he would play at the club. Now, Tannis had an idea that he would enjoy smoking a bit of pot and getting a bit high, which we couldn't do at the club, of course. So she said, well, you, you take him back. You take him back to our place and, and get him high and then bring him back afterwards. <laughs> and I said, okay, and we lived around the corner and down a block or so from from the coffee house that we were running. So I would, when Neil showed up, it was my job to take him back to the place and smoke some pot with him and get high and then bring him back, of course. It wasn't a basement suite like you'd think a basement suite would be. It was a basement. <laughs> we lived in a basement. So there were these beams and there was one beam that... Now, I probably didn't think about it so much until I got high, but there was one beam that if I walked into it, it would knock me unconscious, right, right in front of Neil. I was terrified that that would happen. And then I realized, like, every beam in the place could do that to him because he was so tall. Anyway, so we would, we would smoke pot and sit around and talk, and, and Neil noticed that when the furnace came on, it was a gas furnace and it would go and the gas would come out and I couldn't move, I couldn't talk I couldn't breathe, I couldn't I couldn't do anything until the pilot light went and caught and, and it worked you know, because I was afraid it was going to blow up <laughs> and so Neil's theory on this was every furnace on this entire block, in this whole neighborhood is the same. So that's so many things that you can't possibly worry about them. So, you know, don't worry about your furnace because everybody else's is the same. So then I worried about everybody's <laughs> furnace. It just, that, that didn't really work for me. So we would walk back to the club and uh, Neil would play. He would, he would get up on the stage and he would play. And he didn't look like your normal entertainer because he would sit on the stool all hunched over his guitar and play, not communicating very much with anyone. And then all of a sudden he'd start writing songs and, and you know, writing stuff down and things like that. It was interesting. It could have had to do with taking him back to the uh, 
basement suite and getting him high. Anyway, and uh, in the middle of the night, we would go over to Webster's restaurant, and each table had its own little speaker jukebox sitting there. And when you put money in, then it played at your table until all the music up to your songs, and as soon as your songs are finished, it went quiet. Neil used to play California Dreamin' by the Mamas and the Papas. And he used to talk about, let's go to California. I want to go to California. Come on, guys, let's all go to California. I want to be a rock star. Honest, he said that. So Neil and Janine and Tannis and Brucey Basie, that's what we call Bruce Palmer, and Mike and Judy Mack went on the trip. That's the trip in the hearse to California, and I went to New York City. The first time I saw Neil after all of that was, I don't know, 15 years later maybe? I was working for the Georgia Strait taking photographs, and I was backstage in the hospitality area, and he was talking to his cousin from the prairies, and I said, Neil, can I take a picture of you with your cousin? And he said, sure. And then he looked, and he said, don't I know you? And I said, Tannis and Janine. And he said, Bev, it's all coming back now. And I said, Neil, could you just be really kind and just have some of it come back, not all of it? <laughs> Thank you. We call pack it in buy a pig. With a deeply melancholic tone, Harvest is a pensive collection of songs about longing, loss, and loneliness. For first-generation Chinese-Canadians like writer and teacher Kevin Chong, who wrote the 2005 book Neil Young Nation, growing up with the album soundtracked a different kind of loneliness, one that helped him understand how he would fit into the world and distilled a period of time in his own life that he talked about when he hosted our live show. I grew up in an immigrant household, and I think, I think uh, popular culture, music, was my way of trying to fit in, trying to negotiate my space from my own family and how I fit in with my non-Chinese friends. And I think Neil Young was like my key. He, he was the person who opened doors for me. When I was turning 30, and I thought that was a big deal to turn 30, and it really isn't, uh, but I was really, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, and I didn't know what I was going to write about, and I decided to write a book about Neil Young, and someone decided they would publish a book about Neil Young. And it was about this road trip I took. But I met these great, amazing Neil Young fans. I met a guy who, he went backstage to a Neil Young concert, and Neil Young was getting his hair cut, and he collected clippings from that hair and he has it in a bag. Then I told the story to another Neil Young fan from Germany, and that guy told me when that haircut took place. Because there was like a, the people who can like sort of like name a haircut of Neil Young, they're, they're that intense, and they make me feel like I'm not a big Neil Young fan. When I met all these Neil Young fans, they had all these acronyms for things, because they were so into Neil Young, and one of their acronyms was uh, H-O-G-T-T, -T, and it, that stands for Heart of Gold, 
toe tapper, which means like you're, if you're an H-O-G-T-T, you're a very casual Neil Young fan. I don't know why you just don't say you're a casual Neil Young fan, but that's the kind of devotion he inspires. He, in some ways, is that thing that ties us to our parents, that thing that ties us to other Canadians, that person who we can talk about with a relative who we have nothing else to talk about. <laughs> he's, he's been, he was a key to me, and he's still like a password to me now. Um, this is a little bit of what I wrote. For me, the music of Neil Young was a way of negotiating the way I would fit into the world. His music distilled a melancholic period in my own life by reflecting emotional damage wrought in his own childhood in the pitfalls of stardom. And his chords and words were recipe books for me and my friends as we contacted our own noise in the garages and jam spaces of my youth. The year you spent in your room with the curtains drawn. Now, when I think about Neil Young, I, I think about the friends I've made. While Kevin found his connection with Neil Young through his discography, our next storyteller, Tarek Hussein, found it in a single chord. Tarek is an acclaimed songwriter, musician, teacher, and writer. In fact, he's currently polishing up his memoir. Though he grew up in a household that didn't listen to Neil Young or others within the genre, Tarek came to find comfort in the melodies that music like Harvest provided. Hey, everybody. I want to um, spend my nine minutes sharing with you uh, what I think is one of the most comforting sounds around, and it's this, this sound right here. And I know you're thinking, well, oh, that's a guy playing a guitar. That's, that's pretty comforting, sure. I get that. But it's actually what I'm playing on the guitar. It's this thing right here. It's a G chord. And to me... The G chord is probably, of all the guitar chords, the most comforting guitar chord there is. But sometimes I wonder what I would be, what kind of person I would be, perhaps, if I hadn't found the G chord, or if perhaps the G chord hadn't found me. Because it was a bit of a journey getting to this G chord. Um, my, my parents were immigrants. My dad came from Pakistan. My mom came from Fiji. And, of course, they brought with them all the music that they like to listen to and thought that we should listen to, right? So I listened to a lot of Bollywood soundtrack music. My mom loved those Bollywood records. So I listened to a lot of Bollywood music. Uh, my dad was really into Kowali singing, which is like traditional Pakistani singing. And so we listened to a, a lot of that growing up. Um, and my dad was also kind of, I guess you could say, a, a bit of a strict curator of the culture at our house. So, you know, listening to Led Zeppelin or ACDC or anything, any songs that were playing on the radio were not really on the top of my dad's playlist. He was probably thinking, well, I got to teach my first generation kids about what real music is. And it didn't really involve a lot of this comfort chord uh, on a six string guitar, acoustic guitar. Um, but I but I heard a lot of pop music anyway. Like you know, I would hear it. My friends would listen to it, so I'd hear it that way. Maybe I'd hear it. We went through the mall, walking through, and hear it coming out of some stores. I'd hear it that way. And so pop music was kind of seeping into my brain through the cracks, and I started to get more and more interested in it. And maybe in a way, 
Um, looking back, I was perhaps looking for a kind of comfort cord, even though I might not have specifically known that I was trying to do that. I think I was potentially trying to do that. And so by the time I got to high school, um, something interesting happened. There, there are these two guys there. Uh, these two guys, we'll call them John and Paul. And John and Paul used to hang out at the smoke, in the smoking lounge at my high school. Yes, our, our high school had a smoking lounge, believe it or not. Guess I'm dating myself, but anyway. Uh, so they used to hang out there, and I thought they were the coolest guys. I, I, not only did I want to be friends with those guys, I wanted to be just like those guys. They had super long hair, and they wore headbands, and they had leather pieces of leather around their neck with colorful beads. They were the, the high school hippies, right? We all, didn't everyone have the high school hippies? These were the high school hippies. They even wore the Indian print shirts, you know, the ones with the pattern around the collar, which I would never have worn as a kid, and my mom would try to make me wear them. But these guys made the Indian print shirt look cool. Um, they recontextualized it, I guess, by wearing it with blue jeans, and Converse running shoes and so on. And so I really wanted to be like these guys. I wanted to get into their circle. But I was also really nervous about it. And um, kind of like, you know, asking, asking a girl you have a crush on that like you want to talk to her, but you can't. So you just kind of scuttle by and you don't ever say anything. The thing that really got me about these guys is they play guitars. And what they would do every noon hour is they, I would see them in the lounge there playing their guitars. And that excited me more than anything and I really really want to go talk to them but I never did so I just kind of you know in the background I'd hear them playing and then one day I said okay enough Tarek like you know get some balls let's do this so I walked I, I can distinctly remember the moment that I walked right up to them and I could see this vision in my mind of that moment them sitting down there playing me standing in front of them and I don't think I said anything I don't remember what I said if I said anything but Whatever it was, they uh, allowed me to be part of their friend group. So the duo of John and Paul became a trio. They let me in, and I would spend my lunch hours listening to them play songs. And um, John, in particular, uh, was a big fan of this guy named Neil Young. And he was a big fan of the Harvest album. So, you know, he would sit there and play, I think I'll pack it in by pickup. Take it down to L.A. Now, if you're if you kind of been like feeling my G chord, that was in the key of G. I think the song might be in the key of A, actually, in the album, but there's that key of G, or the play. Keep me searching for a heart of gold. Right, and there's that G chord again. Uh, always coming back to the G, my comfort chord. So one day I said to, you know, I was hanging around, and I wanted to learn how to play guitar. So I said, what is that chord you're always playing? Like, so many of the songs you play are in that key. And so John said, oh, well, okay, just give me, you know, hands me the guitar and says, okay, put your, put your, put your first finger there on the fifth string and of the second fret and put your second finger on the sixth string of the third fret and put your first finger right there on the, on the first string on the third fret and play that chord. And that's a G chord. And I went, okay, and it sounded like... Probably sounded kind of like... Because my hands weren't strong enough and I didn't have calluses on my fingers and I couldn't quite play the G chord quite right at that time. But I worked at it and I worked at it and I worked at it. I went home every night and I worked at trying to get that G chord really smooth until it was smoothed out and it sounded like butter, kind of nice and sweet. And it became uh, from a very uncomfortable sound to a very comfortable sound. And I guess I could say, looking back on it now, that 
Um, the G chord really is not only a comfort chord for me, but also kind of um, a portal, kind of a gateway into a very, the very coveted world of Western pop music that I didn't have full access to for a long time. But finally, uh, through my friends John and Paul and the G chord, uh, I found a way in. And even now, for whatever reason, I don't know how to explain this, and maybe you guitar players uh, feel this as well, that whenever you pick up a guitar, you play a certain chord. So whenever I pick up a guitar, I tend to always play the G chord. It just happens. I don't. It's like a conspiracy in my brain and my fingers. Like They want to just do that, and I don't really know why, but there you go. That's what happens. So I'm going to play you a song to wrap up my story that I wrote in the, using the G position chord, but I'm actually going to capo it. Started with a buzzing feeling that turned into a ringing sound. So I fired up the headboat heater and headed on into town. There was snow burning up in the headlights across on the side of the hill. Felt as cold as the steel in my right leg. I keep beneath the windowsill I still get letters from some friends in the army Forwarded from my last address Sometimes when I'm not feeding the horses I feel something rising up in my chest I could drive through the night to see you I could fly to England to France just slow down as I'm passing the schoolhouse If you finish teaching your night class Always staring at me from the shell. Talk about seeing your own reflection, reflecting back on yourself. I'm not sorry I saw you, but I'm coming back down that Coca-Cola highway alone. Cause the voices will be needing their own soon. And I'm sensing you got places to go. Oh, oh, oh. Saddle and we ride on through 
the night lately I've been having the same dream I'm falling out of the sky I pull you up into my saddle and we ride on through the night lately I've been having the same dream I'm falling out of the sky I pull you up into my saddle Here's where I could, I could end on this chord, but you probably wouldn't be happy if I ended on this chord, because it's not the comfort chord, right? It's like, you probably wouldn't be able to sleep tonight. You'd be like, oh, well, I'm tossing and turning and like getting up and drinking, because I ended on this chord. You want the comfort chord, right? You want it, right? I pull you up into my saddle, and we ride. Thanks. Thanks for the guitar. My life is changing in so many ways. I don't know who to trust anymore. Harvest introduced Neil Young to the world and launched him reluctantly to stardom. But the overdose death of his friend and touring guitarist Danny Witten, which inspired the song Needle and the Damage Done, caused him a lot of guilt. I watched the needle take another man Gone, gone, the damage done Neil destructively purged those emotions throughout a 62-date tour of North America, alienating fans with unrecognizably aggressive versions of his chart-topping album. After this act of self-sabotage, he retreated from fame and recorded the Ditch Trilogy, three albums that explored the bleeding edge of his own chaotic life, including the fan favorite, Tonight's the Night. Our last storyteller, filmmaker Ryan Udewilligan, recalls a period of his life when he was looking for fame and fortune, and how going to a Neil Young concert made him feel even more connected with his hometown roots. I was a jittery fan about to see Neil Young live in concert. I didn't care how my fellow Albertans felt about him. He was the guy who sang frickin' Heart of Gold. The man's a legend. I had been out in Vancouver for a year and a half in the midst of a self-finding journey to make my mark on the cinematic writing world. An only child, freshly parentless, with a hurtin' heart and a noggin full of plot twists, I was and still remain to this day a young and foolish small-town boy. There were no album burners at this concert, certainly no oil workers, all Vancouverites. He stepped out wearing a signature straw hat that covered his scraggly long hair, the harmonica hooked into its neck brace and the guitar firmly in his hands. Oh, he sang Heart of Gold, all right, but that was all I knew. For two hours, the man proudly belted out a series of protest songs ranging from Devil Monsanto to the Monsanto Years. He clearly had an anti-GMO agenda, and me, I didn't really know how to feel. See, I grew up on a farm, and that stretched as far as the eye could see, with grain that rustled in the wind, and deer running wild through the beans, and... <clears throat> Boof, you must, it was genetically modified. But that's what I knew. I was raised in the world of seeding and planting and spraying and harvest... As an only child, it was guaranteed to be all mine when I came of age. Only the world of storytelling found me first. 
I was always writing. I needed to get something down on the page, what I wasn't sure. I just needed to get something into readers' hands. Between daydreaming and penning fan episodes of the TV show Friends, I would help my dad in the fields. I had more space to play on than any kid could ever imagine, and I could drive before I could even see over the steering wheel. Harvest was hell. It was a month-long extravaganza of 15-hour workdays, meals on the fly, and a constant cloud of dust created by the convoy of torpedoing semis. I'd sit on the armrest of my dad's tractor, watching carefully every lever he pulled and button he pushed. I didn't get to drive that one. That man was incredibly particular on how straight his seat rows had to be. But as soon as I got home, it was movie-watching with Mom and daydreaming about casting Brad Pitt in my latest thriller. I never really did fit in there. It was evident I wasn't going to take it over. I lacked the interest. I needed feedback and paper and an audience and words. Dad didn't understand, but luckily Mom had my back. She was the creative one, always reading or keeping up with Hollywood. It stung when we lost her, but that's life, and all we could do was keep going. As we went forward, college was chosen over farming. Dad came around and reluctantly supported my choice. I decided to stay home and play it safe, journalism. Though I liked it, there was always a creative aspect I missed. I yearned for something different, new sights and opportunities. Everyone in that town was just so manly with their big pickup trucks and greased-up coveralls. I looked like an alien to them and vice versa. For Dad, it was as heaven. He often said that his two greatest accomplishments in life were the farm and me. He died almost precisely three years after Mom, and while emotions swirled, I suddenly became the new owner of a 20,000-acre farm. His brothers worked with him, well, more like under him. He was the oldest brother who wouldn't let the others touch his coveted tractor. He was convinced he was the only one who could get the job done right, his way or the highway, he would say. I helped more than ever that year, checking pivots and driving tractors, and when harvest came around, there were three men in the field like always. Four, because I brought my father's urn out with me and set him on the armrest where I used to ride. Upon his wishes, we spread his ashes in the fields. He was now forever a part of harvest. And well, the world of writing and cinema was finally much too tempting then. I left the land to my capable uncles to farm as they saw fit. I packed up every belonging ever owned to my parents and made the move to Hollywood North. I had no reason not to try now. Soon I found myself on movie sets, eating KFC with Sean Bean and taking lectures with Oliver Stone. I ate at fancy vegan restaurants that charged 30 bucks for a carrot slice. I was fascinated how every street smelled like what I thought was a skunk. I was that naive. (laughs) The frequency of fur protesters and the generally offended was just overwhelming. It was a whole different world. And yet, what did I write? Westerns and small town stories. I struggled to click with life in the West Coast. It was just all so different to me, which I guess was the point. The confines of tall and glassy, super classy Yale town made me miss the fresh air and open fields, the gravel roads and harvest. It would seem I had a lot of my old man in me after all. My projects had to be my way or the highway, and they all had to do with farming. Though it was Mom who gave me the creative bug, there are days I can't help but see him and me. Noises I'll make or phrases I'll say... I guess that's evident I'm his son after all. I kind of whimpered and groaned that whole Neil Young concert. And I can't help but think what the two of them would have thought if uh, we'd have all gone together. Mom would probably complain because she wasn't really a fan. His voice went a little too high and whiny for her. Then again, she never complained in her whole life. She would have gone because I wanted to. 
And when the Monsanto songs kicked in, my dad would have sighed and rolled his eyes, probably let out a few dozen curse words. He was worse than Scarface for that. (sighs) Would they have stayed through the whole thing? I don't know. I did, perplexed about who I was. I wanted to embrace the words and the spirit, but something inside wouldn't let me. Not quite a prairie farm boy, not quite a West Coast writer. I was caught somewhere in the middle, but I guess that's made me who I am. I forgive Neil for that concert, not that I was ever really that mad at him. It just got me thinking on where I stood and who I was. I think Neil thought about that too, where he was musically at the time of Harvest's release and his insecurities about his music and relationship and his future. I understand it more. Back in the farm days, the songs just played in the background on truck stereos during beer runs. Now that I've actually paid attention, right off the bat, track one seems to explain me after my parents died. I think I'll pack it in and buy a pickup, take it down to L.A., find a place to call my own, try and fix it up, start a brand new day. See the lonely boy out on the weekend trying to make it pay, can't relate to joy. He tries to speak but can't begin to say. Three years later, I'm on the path that's starting to make it a little bit clear. I'm beginning to understand what it is I want to say. And as I do, I'm changing and growing, appreciating old views and values while learning new ones. I can really see Canada as a really diverse place, such a vast country with different viewpoints and styles every couple kilometers. Neil Young knows that. He sings and writes about that, and I feel lucky because I'm getting to experience it all too. I miss my parents a lot, and I miss home, but I have the future. So if anyone wants to read a book I wrote or a movie that I, I made, all I have to say to you is this. Are you ready for the country? And that's Record Club for this week, featuring Harvest by Neil Young. Our next episode dives into the stories of a newer album, one that took the dance punk revival of the mid-aughts by storm. It was one for the late bloomers, the asymmetrical haircut types, and anyone who was looking for an excuse to dance. Your Record Club album for next week is The Sound of Silver by LCD Sound System. So I took a page from James Murphy's book. Everyone was going to talk about how weird and embarrassing I was? Fine. I was going to show them just how weird and embarrassing I could be. Record Club is a Kelly and Kelly production. It is recorded on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. It is produced by Chris Kelly, Max Collins, Dave Shumka, and Jody Camilleri. Record Club was created and produced by Lizzie Carp and Ken Soy and recorded at a Hear There event. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, spread the word about it, and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Louise Burns. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.